You're listening to the Adult Explore the Bible Weekly Leader Training Podcast. This podcast is designed to help teachers prepare to lead a Bible study group using LifeWay's Explore the Bible adult resources. Each week, we review the Bible passage for that week's study, examine some questions teachers may face, and get some teaching tips along the way. I'm Dwayne McCurry, your host, and today I'm being joined by Bob Bunn. Bob, thank you for being with us today. Sure, Dwayne. Glad to. And we're going to be looking at session six of the summer 2022 study of first and second Kings. Uh, we'll be looking at first Kings 18, 28 through 39. This is where Elijah takes on the Baal worshipers. Now in the background, there's been no rain for three years and that's because of their idol worship. And now God sends Elijah to King Ahab to challenge the worshipers of Baal to kind of a, I don't want to say a duel, but it is kind of a duel. Now, one thing we've got to remember here is Ahab, his wife is Jezebel, so we want to keep that in mind just for context. One thing that I found very helpful in preparing for this lesson is pack item nine, which is a list of the kings of the divided kingdom. And on one side, you have the kings of Judah, and on the other side, you have the kings of Israel. And they're listed in such a way so that you know which king was tied to which king between Judah and Israel. So we see that Omri and Ahab, we see the time period of that. Omri would have been Ahab's dad. So uh, this is Ahab, 874 to 853 BC. So that gives us some historical context when we're thinking about this. Uh, another thing that I found helpful is the dig deeper feature uh, in Quicksource uh, because it has the information about Baal, uh, that he was a storm god. Uh, the Canaanites believe that he brought rain and caused the crops to grow. And he's always depicted as a wearing a cone-shaped hat and holding a stalk of wheat and a lightning bolt. And this seems to be the one that the Israelites struggled with the most was this particular God. And so uh, there not being any rain was a direct attack against Baal by God. So that's why that's important. And it's important for us to remember that in the background. But let's walk through the passage. First point is futility. Verses eight, uh, chapter 18, verses 25 through 29, Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to prepare an offering to their gods and call down fire. They called on Baal all morning without any answer. Elijah taunts the prophets as they shouted more loudly and cut themselves, but still there was no answer. For us to take away is knowing that all false gods will lead to disappointment and emptiness. In the second section, preparation, Verses 30 through 35 of chapter 18, Elijah called all the people to himself and repaired an altar formally dedicated to God that included one stone for each of the tribes of Israel. We'll talk about that in just a minute, Bob. He added a trench around the altar, arranged wood, and then directed water to be poured over the sacrifice and wood three times. For us, we can understand that God is honored when we express trust in his power. The last part of this passage, verses 36 through 39, we've entitled response. And in these verses, Elijah asked God to show his power and presence. God sent fire that consumed all the sacrifice, wood, altar, and the water present. The people fell face down, declaring God to be the Lord. For us, we can understand that God answers the humble prayers of his servant. Now, Bob, I've already mentioned something here, and that's the 12 stones. Uh, one of the things that we'll probably want to 
bring out to our groups is that the people who were present there represented Israel or the northern kingdom, which only been 10 of the tribes. Yet uh, here is Elijah bringing in and rebuilding this altar for 12 tribes with 12 stones representing the wholeness, all of Israel, both Judah and Israel, even though they were separate. Reminding us that God's covenant was with his people as a whole and not just the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, but that group of 12. So it's important for you to keep that in mind, I think. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Bob, let's ask this question. How does this passage help us understand that sincerity is not enough? Because the Baal worshipers, they were as sincere a group of people as you'd ever see. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was thinking through the, the idea of sincerity. And in my mind, I guess just because the generation that I grew up in, my mind went back to Linus from The Great Pumpkin. You know, Charlie Brown, Peanuts, all that stuff. And, and there's a scene in that in that cartoon where Linus is writing a letter to the Great Pumpkin, kind of like he would write a, line, a letter to Santa Claus. And, and one of his friends comes by and sees what he's doing and basically says, why are you doing that? You're wasting your time. He's a fake. He's a fraud. You know, I don't, I don't know why you're doing that. And he puts a little PS on the end of the letter that, that basically says, some of my friends say that you're fake, but I don't believe that. But if you are, don't tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> so, you know, he was, when you think about sincerity, he thought he had found the most sincere pumpkin patch around. And he, he was willing to, to sacrifice his trick-or-treating. He, he even pulled Sally in and she spent the night there with him in the, in the pumpkin patch. And, you know, for, for what? For nothing. You know, he, he lost all that opportunity. And, and to me, he, he kind of reminds me of these prophets of Baal. You're right. They were incredibly sincere. Uh, they they believe what they believed, and and they were willing to go to almost any length to prove it. But even after all these hours and hours and hours that they had spent calling out to their God for an answer, they basically got nothing. Uh, they got more wounds on them from where they hurt themselves, and they got uh, they got other other than that, they got empty sky and 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 silence. And several times in the passage, it says that no one answered, no one responded. So there's this, this, this vanity, this emptiness that's in there. And that reminds us that you can be sincere, but you can also be sincerely wrong. And that's what these guys were. And this, the, the challenge that we have as believers is not to be sincere because sincerity is important. The opposite of sincerity is hypocrisy. And, and we certainly don't want that. But the key is to make sure that you place your sincerity into something that has substance. Uh, specifically someone who has substance. And that's, where, that's what Elijah understood. He was sincere as well, but his sincerity was resting in a real God who was going to send fire and who was going to make a difference. And really someone that he had already experienced. He had already, if you read the background passages for this, this lesson, he had already experienced God's provision and God's movement in a lot of different really cool ways. So this was for him, this was not even a challenge. This was something that, that he knew was going to happen and that God was in control. And his, his sincerity and his confidence was resting in that truth, not in wishful thinking and not in a fraud, not in the hoax that, that had deceived the Baal followers and, and really had deceived a lot of the, the nation of Israel going up to that point. It does remind us of the importance of our sincerity being based on truth. And how we determine what truth is, what we trust, exactly. what we're willing to trust, um, mm -hmm. and why we would trust that. Uh, you mentioned silence. 
don't you know that was an eerie scene? Here these folks are hooping and hollering, getting after it, and then stopping and looking around like, and it's, there's like there's nothing. nothing like this. Silence, just like that. I mean, I, I can't imagine uh, how um, strange that must have been for them thinking that, that you know, we're going to do all this. And then they get back to Hooper and Holler and then stop. And there's more silence, not even crickets. Right. So right. Um, that scene is eerie in some ways. Yeah. And we absolutely live in a culture that 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 treasures sincerity. <laughs> and often it's sincerity over substance. If somebody if somebody is, really believes what they believe, then they often get a pass, whether their logic is sketchy or not or whether their theology is sketchy or not. It's, it's the traces of what we used to call postmodernism, where they just said, you know, as long as you believe what you believe and you believe with all your heart, then it has to be true to some extent. And you can't judge somebody for that. But that's not the image that we see in scripture. It's not the example that we see in Elijah's life. And uh, it's, it's something that we need to be careful of even today as believers. Yeah. There's a prayer that's offered here by Elijah. Uh, simple prayer. Um, how does this prayer compare to other prayers in the Bible, and what does it teach us about the nature of prayer in general? Right. Yeah, and you mentioned that there, one, of the, one of the things that really sticks out to me is how short it is. It's only a couple of verses long, yeah. and really he, he, it's one verse sort of repeats the other verse, and so it's really one statement that's repeated a couple of different times in a couple of different ways. So that's one thing that you can draw out as a leader, I think, is just emphasize how short it was, especially in contrast to how long the prophets of Baal had been going at it. Uh, you mentioned earlier that they just screamed and screamed and went at it and hooped and hollered and all that stuff. And, and they did for hours at a time. And Elijah just kind of patiently and a little sarcastically sat and by, on sidelines and watched them go through this time and time and time and time. But when he stepped up to the plate, he was short, he was succinct because he knew he didn't need to spend a lot of words because he knew that God was going to hear him. He knew that God was going to respond. Another interesting thing about this prayer is the timing of it. The scripture goes uh, specifically and says that, that it was, in, that he built, he rebuilt that altar, those 12 stones that you mentioned. He rebuilt that altar at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, most likely none of the, none of the Israelites there had been, had been observing the the evening sacrifice for who knows how long, you know, they, it was not a part of their daily routine, but I think in their minds, they probably understood. And I think our resources bring this out too, that in their minds, they understood. It's sort of like in our culture, we say, well, you go to church on Sunday morning. Well, in their culture, well, you do the evening sacrifice, you do that at this time. But it was something that Elijah was able to use to connect the people to the lesson that they were getting ready to learn, whether they realized it in that moment or not he knew, and he knew that they would make the connection here in a little bit. The other thing is that when he prayed, he was talking to God, but he was also talking to the crowd. And I love this because he, he wanted, he says a couple of different times, God, I want you to do this so that they will know that they will know that you alone are God in Israel and that I'm your prophet. Um, it reminded me of a couple of times in Jesus' life when he prayed out loud and he specifically would say something like, uh, you know, I don't say this prayer for you, God, because I know that we're connected, but I'm saying it for those who are listening so that they will understand who you are. And this is the same principle that I see here in Elijah, that he, he wanted them to know, because that's really what this whole contest was all about. It wasn't, 
It wasn't so much that to prove anything because he already knew who God was. It was to remind the Israelites who the real God was and to point them right in, in back into the right direction. Um, as far as what we can learn about it, maybe some things that some leaders can can emphasize. I, I think, first of all, you'd say, obviously, we can pray with confidence. Um, Elijah was 100% sure that his prayer was going to be answered. The, the fact that he had watched the, the Baal prophets perform for hours upon a time and got no response did not faze him at all. He, was, he knew God was going to answer. And we can approach God with that same confidence. Another thing is that we need to remember that our prayers often impact the lives of other people. That, again, is what Elijah was trying to do. His, his prayer and this whole contest was for the benefit of the people of Israel, to bring them back to God, to, to lead them into the direction that they needed to go. Uh, yeah, they responded, as we'll see when we go through the fire part of it, they responded because they saw God at work. They saw God's actions. They saw God's response. But God used that prayer as part of the process. And then the third thing that we might be able to take away is, and it did, the text doesn't really say this specifically, but I think it's, I think it's a fair point, a fair principle to pull out of it, is that regular prayer is what led to that moment. This wasn't Elijah's first time to talk to God. Exactly. I don't think, it wasn't the first time I talked about God. I wouldn't even be surprised if it wasn't the first time he had talked about God bringing fire <laughs> in this particular situation. Just looking in the background passages and seeing how God worked in the life, the life of, of Elijah by the brook and, and Zarephath and all those kind of passages where he provided in the midst of the famine. I just believe that, that Elijah had an ongoing communion with God through prayer, and that prepared him for this very moment, which, which tells us a couple of things. We never know exactly how our prayers are going to be answered. Um, we don't know that, you know, it's not like Elijah where, where he knew that fire was going to come down from heaven. We don't always know that. But we know that God answers prayer and we know that he calls us to pray. And he knows that and we know that every time that, that we pray, we are preparing ourselves for something greater. And, and so that's that's just something that, that maybe we don't always think about. But we just need to keep praying. Even, in, even when it doesn't make sense. And honestly, from a logical perspective, this didn't make a lot of sense. He was 450 to one, but he was standing by himself and it, it turned out that he was right and they were wrong. In the background of this is, the, is this issue about trusting in something or someone other than God. Because obviously the bell worshipers, the people who came to watch this, uh, they were trusting in something or someone other than God. What are some things we can do to keep us from falling into that same trap? It could be subtle. Our trust could be misguided suddenly and us not realize it. Uh, what steps can we take to keep us from ending in that same place? Of course, the Sunday schools, the Sunday school answers, <laughs> or you read your Bible, you pray, you go to church, you hang out with other Christians, and you surround yourself with them and help them allow, allow them to hold you accountable. And but. Just because they're Sunday school answers doesn't mean they're wrong. In fact, in this case, I think they're exactly right. The story of the Israelites drifting from God, I don't think it happened in a flash. I don't think it was something sudden. I think it was like a, a slow fade that kind of happened over time. And they just got comfortable with compromise. And it wasn't that they didn't think about God or they didn't even believe God necessarily. It's just that they had allowed him to become one among others. And that so many of these other 
gods, especially Baal and Ashtaroth, had kind of stepped in and filled some of the role that 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 God had traditionally played in the past. And that's dangerous. And lest we think that that we're immune from that because we don't bow down to rocks and stones and pieces of wood, there are still idols that we deal with today. Idolatry is just as dangerous today. In fact, I was I was reading not too long ago, um, I saw a quote from, from Tim Keller, who, and I don't remember the quote exactly, but he made the statement, of course, he wrote a book about about idolatry in, in contemporary times. Mm-hmm. But um, he made the statement that sometimes even good things like ministry <laughs> and, and service, they can become gods if we're trusting in those things to give us the, what we need rather than trusting in God. There are certain things that we can only get from God. And if we're looking for any, any other way to get those things, we're suffering from idolatry. And so it, it can be a real subtle thing for us. And it can be centered on things that we would typically think are good, but we're allowing those things to usurp God's role in our lives. Um, To kind of combat that, I think we've got to step back every once in a while and just say, okay, let's take a look at my life. Let's get real. Let's get harsh with ourselves in a little bit. Let's, uh, Let's do a ruthless inspection of our lives and see what kind of things we're depending on other than God. I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, and so the Chronicles of Narnia were kind of were my gateway into C.S. Lewis. And <laughs> in, in one of his uh, one of his books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he he tells the story of a guy named Eustace Scrubs, who who Eustace that actually the first line of the book is there was a boy named Eustace Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Um, Eustace was a rotten guy for most of the book, and they they end up getting shipwrecked on an island for a little while, and while he's there, he, he is magically transformed into a, a dragon because of his evil insides, because of what's going on internally, his greed, his selfishness, his idolatry, uh, all these things transformed him and his outside sort of took the form, uh, his inside took the form outside of a dragon. And the only way that Eustace could become a boy again was for Aslan to come and with his sharp, razor sharp claws, scrape the dragon's skin away. There was a lot of times, there, it, it describes how Eustace could kind of scrape a little bit of it away himself, kind of like a snake sheds its skin, but he was always still dragonish. It wasn't until Aslan came and just ripped into that skin and went deep and peeled back those layers and then cleansed him and healed him that he was finally able to return to his normal self. And it's a great illustration of what, how we need to treat idolatry. We can try to play with it, <laughs> and we can kind of scrape off the surface sometimes, but to really go deep and to really understand, uh, we've got to allow Jesus to do a, a, just a ruthless inspection. Uh, and It's painful, it's uncomfortable, but it's incredibly necessary, and it will keep us from falling into the same trap, I think, that the Israelites fell into by just basically taking God for granted or adding other gods to him. Exactly. Yeah. Which is, that was really syncretism was really their, their thing. And if we don't think that's a reality today, then we're fooling ourselves. Exactly. And that wasn't just a, that that wasn't just the Northern kingdom. The Southern kingdom had the same problems at the time. So we'll get into exactly. Yeah. Yeah, You really can't know God until you know the idols that are trying to replace him in your life. Any other key thoughts or ideas you would share from this passage, Bob? Now, this is just one of those great stories that we've, if, if you've grown up in church, 
And you and I joke a lot about flannel graphs and you know going back to the days of of having teachers put the put the little images on the flannel graphs. If you if you've been in church that long, you know this story. But this is a great opportunity to really dig deeper into something familiar and let God teach you something new that you may have never heard before. Yeah, and the key point, using those reflective questions that are in the personal study guide or daily discipleship guide that will help you think um, about it in today's terms, where you are now in your life. Exactly. Which would be important uh, as you lead this group. Right. Bob, thank you for being with us today. Before we go, let me remind our listeners about Extra. We identify a current news event and describe a way of using that news story to introduce and conclude the group time. The file's free, and you can find these ideas on the Explore the Bible website by typing the following in your web browser, goexplorethebible.com forward slash leader extras. That's goexplorethebible.com forward slash leader extras. Thank you for listening to us today, and we hope you'll encourage other teachers to tune in next week. We'll be looking at session seven, Mike Livingston will be joining me. We'll be looking at 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 18, and focusing on God's purposes and how they bring us hope, even in times of despair. Mm-hmm.